from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. The first time I saw Bob Montgomery give a talk, I was fascinated. Yes, it's true. His presentation was innovative, groundbreaking. He was describing his experience with transplanting the untransplantable, a topic I found fascinating as a newly minted transplant surgeon myself. Dr. Montgomery is truly a pioneer in the field of transplant and has always thought outside the box when it comes to strategizing for his patients and how to help them. He developed and performed the first domino pair donation, something we now call kidney pair donation or paired exchange. It is simple in concept. Say you want to give your sister a kidney but are incompatible, and I want to give my brother a kidney but I am incompatible as well. How about I give my kidney to your sister and you give yours to my brother? He extended this to two-way, three-way, four-way, five-way, six-way, and eight-way domino pair donations. He also performed the first 10-way open chain donation, where a humanitarian donor sets off the domino pair donation. In 2010, he was credited in the Guinness Book of World Records with performing the most kidney transplants in one day. I mean, that is something. I'm in there as well, by the way, but it is for the most times getting lost in my own hospital. It is a really confusing hospital, in my defense. As if that wasn't enough, he also was and remains the world leader in incompatible transplantation, or finding ways to override the immune system and allow transplantation across incompatible blood types or antibody barriers. These strategies together have allowed him and the rest of us to transplant people who would never be candidates for transplant anywhere else. Yes, this was all impressive. It didn't hurt that he was also the chief of transplant at the Johns Hopkins Hospital at the time. He spoke with authority, but also calmness and even humor. But none of that is why I was so fascinated. It was something so much more impressive. His facial hair. He has one of those mustaches that extends down his face and beyond, I think I would have to call it a mustache mutton chop. As an aside, I do spend a lot of time preparing for these podcasts so that you, the listener, will learn as much as possible with your valuable time. For this one, I spent a lot of time looking at categories of mustaches, beards, and sideburns, and I have decided on the official term, friendly mutton chop. Unlike regular mutton chops from the sideburn family, they are termed as friendly as they meet through a mustache. However, like regular mutton chops, they feature thick growth down the jawline. It might not be the perfect description. I'll be sure to ask him. Ever since that day, I have followed Dr. Montgomery's career carefully, and what a career it has been. His work has facilitated the transplantation of so many people, and not just at his own program. His work has changed the way all of us look at how to make transplants happen. When I think about all of those patients that have been liberated from dialysis, all of those lives saved, and beyond that, all those wonderful heroes who have stepped forward to donate a kidney to someone in need. 
So much of that could happen because of the vision and commitment of Dr. Montgomery. He also has been an incredible mentor to so many other up-and-coming leaders in our field, cementing his status as a true pioneer. In 2016, he moved to the Big Apple to found the Transplant Institute at NYU. He successfully grew that program into a world leader in every type of transplant, from kidneys to pancreas, to livers to hearts and lungs, to bone marrow, to face transplant, to hair transplant. Not really hair transplant. In September of 2020, he was appointed chairman of surgery at Langone NYU Health. So that all seems pretty impressive. But there are a few other things that seem worth mentioning. Like the fact that he is married to a diva. And I don't mean someone who holds a high opinion of him or herself. Like, say, someone like me. I mean an actual famous opera singer. How cool is that? Or the other fact that in September of 2018, he underwent a heart transplant for a familial cardiomyopathy that he had known about for at least three decades. In that time, he had suffered numerous cardiac arrests, saved by an implanted defibrillator that would go off whenever his heart would start to misfire, or sometimes even saved by CPR. In one of the first such episodes, he had just arrived at Oxford for a PhD in immunology when he witnessed a car crash. He ran over and extricated a baby that was strapped into the back seat of the now upside-down car. As he pulled the baby out, he noticed his heart was racing. Shortly after he handed the baby off, his heart went into ventricular fibrillation, and he was shocked, literally. It was one of the many times his defibrillator saved his life. While a normal person might have decided perhaps a career in complex surgery was not in the cards, Dr. Montgomery had a different reaction. He realized he had to find a way to control his stress response. I had to completely remodel my brain and not allow my body to react. Wow. There's actually so much more to Dr. Bob Montgomery. If anyone makes a short list of the most interesting people in the world, I am quite confident Bob will be on it right after me. No, I'm just joking. He'll probably be on it a couple of people down from me. I am so excited to have Bob Montgomery on the set. Okay, Bob Montgomery, welcome to the set. Thanks, Josh. It's uh, it's great to be here with you. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you here. I've been learning so much about you, and I think you could be one of the most interesting people I've I've really ever read about. Well, that's uh, that's very flattering. Um, I don't know if it's true, but uh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we start to unpack things? I'd like to start uh, from the beginning and just hearing kind of where you were born, where you grew up. Sure. So um, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. And when I was eight years old, um, my father was transferred to Philadelphia. He was a, a mechanical engineer and he took a new job and we relocated to the suburbs of Philadelphia, a town called Abington. I see. Is that like one of the main line towns out there? No, it's not on the main line, but it's a, you know, it's sort of like a uh, leave it to beaver suburban setting. I, I was one of four boys. You know, it was uh, mayhem around our place, as you can imagine. <laughs> Now, I'm just curious to ask, because I guess I know a little bit about you, and I don't know if you were one of the better kids of the four, but is it true that you got kicked out of parochial school? I did. I did. I got kicked out of uh, Catholic school, and my teacher, my second grade teacher, wrote on my report card that um, Bobby doesn't think the rules apply to him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I spent most of my first two years in school standing in the corner. Oh, my gosh. You think people would still say that about you now? 
Um, I hope they would say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and maybe we'll get into some of that uh, as we move forward, because I, I do think to be a pioneer in a field and to try new things, sometimes you have to believe the rules don't apply. But maybe as a little kid, that doesn't work as well. It doesn't work well in parochial school, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. So then you ended up in public school, is that right? Yep, that's right. So it was uh, kind of a transition when we moved that occurred. So yeah, I was uh, in in the suburban uh, uh, public school and I went through, you know, finished high school in um, Abington. So Bob, when you were... Um I believe in high school, like 13, 14, 15, your father started to get sick. Can you tell me a little about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, he started to, you know, show some signs of, um, of heart failure, which, of course, I didn't know what that meant then. But he used to do a lot of work around the house and he started to get short of breath. And then one day he had a sudden death and he, you know, sort of collapsed. And on his own, his heart must have converted. And they worked him up and found that he had cardiomyopathy. And, you know, it seemed to be something that had come on pretty suddenly. And they thought it was probably a post-viral cardiomyopathy. And you didn't, at the time, I mean, you were a kid, you probably didn't have any sense how this could ultimately apply to your own health. I imagine that wasn't on your mind. No, no, it, you know, I don't think it was on anybody's mind, including the doctors at the time. They didn't offer that up as a possibility. We were, you know, went on with life, you know, after his uh, untimely death, thinking that it was, you know, a disease that um, he had acquired. And um, it wasn't until my brother dropped dead in a similar way when I was uh, an intern, actually, um, in surgery at Johns Hopkins that we connected the dots and realized that this was a, uh, a genetic disorder. Gotcha. And I, we'll get into that a little bit more later. I, I hate to admit to you that I'm a doctor and I don't know that I even knew much about familial cardiomyopathy. So that's sort of a, a shock to me, I guess, to be honest. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really, I, I think the the portion of cardiomyopathy, you know, that's attributable to genetic disorders has increased, at least the attribution has increased in recent years, the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. And now it's believed to be upward to, you know, 30 or 35 percent of uh, the cardiomyopathies are actually familial. Wow, I didn't know that. So tell me, so in the what year or two when your dad was sick, it sounds like you were taking care of him quite a bit and you guys talked a lot about what that might mean. Can you tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, so so my dad really deteriorated and then ended up having a cardiac arrest, you know, over a period of about um, two years. And um, in the end, really sadly, he had an arrest and, you know, was resuscitated from it, but sustained, you know, severe, a severe brain injury and was in a, a vegetative state for a couple of months, um, which was probably the hardest thing to endure. But before that, he knew he was dying and that there was really no nothing that they, that medicine had to offer him at that point. It was very early in the, uh, 
heart transplant days. And after some promising initial results, there was a period of time when heart transplantation kind of fell into a period where it wasn't being done very frequently um, because of the poor long-term results. Um, and he was kind of right in there. He knew he, he didn't have much time. And I was the youngest of four boys. And, you know, my brothers were all off, had left the house. So he, you know, began to transfer information to me. Uh, Sunday afternoons, he would take me into his, his office in our home and show me where all the the financial records were and, you know, kind of how I would need to sort of take over running that side of things um, because he didn't think that my mom was going to be uh, either prepared or in the right state of mind, you know, after his death to do that. So it, that was quite uh, a daunting uh, time for, you know, a 14-year-old, as you can imagine. Yeah, I can. And did he also talked to you about not being afraid to die. Is that right? Yeah. It, it was, in one of those sessions, he told me that, um, you know, I should never be afraid of dying, that um, he had experienced that before. He had had several cardiac arrests that he'd been resuscitated from. Uh, prior to that. And he he had a very sort of peaceful way of, after he, after he came out of those episodes of looking at life and death. Do you feel that way as well? Yes. You do. I was going to, you know, we'll talk more as we get through your life story, but you are someone who's faced death both in your career as well as in your own personal life, really. And so I imagine this has really shaped a lot of your outlook. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of feel like I'm a little bit on borrowed time. I, I, I feel like I probably shouldn't have survived to this point. You know, I, I have this sort of sense that, you know, I'm still here for some purpose or some reason. And, you know, every day I think about that and try to figure out exactly what that is and, you know, try to live that that destiny, whatever it is. But I, I do feel very peaceful about, you know, whatever is on the horizon, whatever that destiny is, you know, that it's the right one for me, whether that means, you know, on, 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 on this earth or not. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I've written about this a little and I've talked to some others about kind of the liberation people can feel either either from severe illness or being faced with death. I mean, in a way, I guess it can be liberating can be very liberating. You tend to not sweat the small things anymore, and you tend to be able to focus on the important things in life. And, uh, and it, it, there's a lot less kind of white noise in the background. Yeah, it, it, it is just as you say, it feels like, you know, my mind is unencumbered with um, a, a lot of things that it used to focus on. Right. I've just, not to belabor the point, but I was speaking to a friend who had gotten a bad cancer diagnosis. And he, uh, in a way, is happier now than he's ever been. And he said he can finally live in the moment. He just doesn't, like you said, sweat the small stuff and he lets himself live in the moment. I think so many of us struggle in our careers as we're, you know, striving to be the best or to create this or that. You can really forget to live in the moment. Yeah, and it's true. And I think if you let go of that feeling of wanting to strive, things come to you more easily. Those things that you were hoping for and wishing for come to you more easily if you let go of them and, and don't kind of perseverate 
on achieving them. It's an odd phenomenon. Yeah. Hopefully we'll talk about this more. So let me move forward. So your dad was ill, ultimately died. Is that the biggest factor that got you into a career in medicine or was something else? Yeah. So, you know, I always thought when I was little that I wanted to be a veterinarian. I, I, I loved animals and I spent a lot of my younger years, you know, taking care of sick animals and injured animals. And, and then those two years that I spent mostly in the hospital, you know, I'd come home from school and, and my dad during those two years was probably in the hospital a, a year of, of that intermittently. And I would just go straight to the hospital and sit and do my homework in his room and, you know, observe the doctors and nurses coming in and out. And I'm sure that kind of reprogrammed that feeling of wanting to heal and help in its original form, animals into something that, you know, I became in medicine. And one thing I, I, I wanted to ask you, this is a little bit outside the box, but I, I read that your great-grandfather fought, I could be off by a generation, one of them fought in the Civil War, then maybe your great-grandfather in World War One, your grandfather in World War Two. your Am I getting it right? Your father? Yeah, you're, you're a generation off. But yeah, my great grandfather was uh, was in the Civil War, and and um, my grandfather in World War One, and then my dad was in the South Pacific ah. um, during World War Two. He was there for four years, and he was with a um, you know a heavy bomber squadron. And actually, when he returned, then he married my mom. Did you ever consider joining the military? You know, I did actually, um, I, I did when I was in college, I, you know, and thinking about medical school, I did consider entering the military for um, my medical education and got as far as, you know, as the physical and they found on my physical um, a murmur, a heart murmur, which it wasn't really followed up on, but they thought probably, you know, was not consistent with entering the military at that point. But it was something I seriously considered. My dad was very much a, a product of, you know, uh, of that time. He, his parents actually sent him to milita military school when he was eight years old. So he, um, you know, went through high school and everything at a military school, which was kind of a fashionable thing to do then. And then he enlisted right from uh, Augusta Military Academy to, uh, to the South Pacific Theater. Okay. Interesting. I didn't know about that, that about the heart murmur kept you out. You made your way to medical school and then um, it sounds like you really liked medicine, but you in the OR just knew those were your people. Is that is that right? Yeah. I, I like to dissect that statement. Dissect is a good word, of course, for surgery, but how that hit you. Yeah, no, I, I, I love my you know, general medicine rotation, you know, I thought that actually I was thinking a lot about infectious disease because I had had some international experiences by then and was, you know, really thought it uh, would be interesting to, you know, pursue uh, international uh, medicine. And then, you know, the first time I, I scrubbed on a case, it just, I, I, just being in the operating room, that theater, if you will, just felt comfortable immediately. And the surgeons seem to think the way I thought. And I guess that's how most of us find our specialties. It's those, you know, it's the context and the connections with the people. 
And that's certainly what happened with me. But you know, then, then there came a point to decide what field of surgery. And that's when, you know, this kind of fusion of the, my great interest in, in, in medicine and, and taking care of patients longitudinally and surgery came together in transplantation. Because I think it's one of the few specialties in surgery where that occurs. Yeah, that's, I so agree with that. That's a lot of, I probably deep down in more, in more of an internal medicine kind of guy. I'm very cerebral. I like to think through the problems. And I also found in transplant, you got this great mix of operations and the medical side of it. Um, I also think you're right about the decision to go into surgery. It can just be a feeling, someone, you know, wanting to be like someone or a good mentor, but really a feeling that it's right for you. You know, you maybe don't have to describe it more than that. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting thing. Okay, so you ended up uh, as an intern at Johns Hopkins, which was and still is one of the premier surgical institutions, I think, in the country. And it was then that your brother died from a sudden death episode, and then you pieced together that you might be at risk for this as well. Is that right? Yeah, so I was on call. I was on OBGYN, um, which we did in surgery then. Um, and I got a call at 2.30 in the morning from my sister-in-law, and she said, you know, your brother just died. He was water skiing. And so I had his um, heart. Uh, I, I, I spoke to the medical examiner, and he sent his heart to one of the uh, pathologists, the cardiac pathologists at Hopkins. And he, you know, looked at it and said, this is, um, this, this is a cardiomyopathy. You know, and then um, actually they had, I, I still had some slides from my dad's postmortem um, and they, you know, they compared w with that. Yeah, that was an amazing thing. I actually, you know, held his heart in my hands and same thing with my brother, um, my other brother um, who had a heart transplant. I went and looked at his heart after his heart transplant in the pathology lab and, and held his heart too. Wow. So you, and how you had three brothers, is that right? Or am I? Yeah, three brothers. So one is unaffected, my oldest brother, and then the one who had the sudden death at 35. And then my brother who actually had a heart transplant, he's 27 years out now from, from his heart transplant. Wow. That's a great outcome, especially from that era, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He was 39 when he had his Sometimes I think, I bet you do too, as I, I'm a, I love history of medicine and as I read about it, so many outcomes have to do with the luck of what era you were born in. You know, people born a little too early and couldn't get treated for something. It's true. I mean, that's, that's the story of my dad. You know, there was nothing for him. Amazing thing about my story is, I, you know, I was able to leverage the technology that existed at the time, each step of the way to get me to the next step. So, you know, the first thing was the ICD. And so when my brother died, I, you know, got on a treadmill and had, you know, a very uh, malignant arrhythmia when I was at my peak um, exercise. And they determined that, you know, I was going to be at very high risk for a sudden death. And they had just developed the ICD a few years before at, at Hopkins. And, you know, the surgeon who developed it and the physician were there. And, and um, so I got one of the really early forms of the ICD that was 
you know, implanted in my abdomen and they had to do a thoracotomy to put patches around the heart. And then later, you know, when that wasn't enough because I was developing arrhythmias a lot, I went on amiodarone, which is an amazing drug. It just melted away my dysrhythmias. And I was on that for 20 years, which is, you know, a high dose too, uh, which is very unusual because it has a lot of side effects, some of which I had, others that are more life-threatening I didn't. But I calculated one time my lifetime um, exposure to amiodarone. I ate more than seven kilograms of amiodarone tablets over (laughs) those 20 years. Um, which I think most, it's got to be up there in the, the record books. Um, yeah, wow. Most people can't tolerate, you know, the amiodarone like that. But then after that, you know, uh, stopped working, then, then there was a heart transplant. So I was very lucky, as you say. I think I was on the right side of history, whereas I think a lot of people aren't. You know, they just miss something. Same thing, you know, I've thought about when with AIDS, you know, when I was a, um, a young resident, we were operating on it during that uh, plague on AIDS patients all the time. And, you know, and, and I, I saw people dying who then a few years later would have not died after the antivirals came along. And I think that's, that's part of history. Yeah. I mean, we can be so proud of some of the advances in healthcare, but feel sad about the people that missed out on them. Bob, can you tell me about what happened in Italy that led you to needing the heart transplant? Yeah, it's quite a story. So uh, we are in this this little town called Matera, just down near Bari um, in Italy. And I was at a transplant meeting. And the last night, actually, most people had left. And I came back to my hotel room with my wife. I just fell over um, on my face, actually, on a stone floor had a cardiac arrest and hit the floor and, you know, you know, the face bleed so easily and there was blood everywhere. Um, then that started this series of, you know, cardiac arrests one after another, all driven by arrhythmias. They got me to this little hospital, you know, in Matera and put me on a bunch of drips. Actually, when I came into the emergency room, there was a priest there who had been alerted that there was a cardiac arrest coming in. He gave me the last rites. And, you know, I rested a couple more times in the emergency room um, and then woke up later. You know, they kind of were settling me in for this long stay in Italy. And my wife had gotten in touch with one of the, a good friend of ours, who's a transplant surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. And he was coming back from Rome because he had already left the meeting to try to help. And when when he arrived, his name is Mikhail Prado. I, he walked in the room and I said, Mikhail, you got to help me. I got to get out of here. You know, it's I, I got to get back to NYU and get a transplant. And, you know, I told the Italian physicians I had to go and they, you know, they kept saying that's impossible. This is impossible. You know, you won't survive. And, and I said, well, look, I, I, you know, I'll take my, I'll take those odds. And so I signed out, you know, against medical advice, you know, in most places, like in the US, you do that. And basically, they wash your hand, their hands of you, right. But in, you know, in Italy, they, they said, okay, okay, you know, but you know, you have to, we, we have to give you some medication. And so they um, left my IVs in, and I put on a long sleeve shirt. 
and they gave Mikel a bag full of preloaded syringes of resuscitation medications and labeled them all. And um, we got on a commercial flight and he sat next to me and he seemed like oddly like excited. (laughs) 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 And I said, Mikel, the whole idea here is, you know, we're not supposed to use those medications. Um, (laughs) And anyway, so that's how we got back to, uh, to New York. And as soon as I got back to the hospital, uh, you know, I contacted everybody and I, you know, ended up in the, uh, in the ICU, but that's, 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 incredible. How, we, that's how we got back. Um, I, I picture him while you were asleep on the plane, holding a mirror in front of your nose, <laughs> ready to, ready to inject or shock you or something. <laughs> that exactly. is, that is just an unbelievable story. Um, explains a lot about your ability to handle risk. Uh <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because then uh, when after my transplant, there was a, a nurse and I had actually signed out AMA from NYU one time when I had had a arrest and a long CPR and had broken ribs and everything. And But my mom died and, and her funeral was the next day. And, you know, I said to the guys, I said, look, I, I, you know, I can't miss my mom's funeral. But Anyway, so the, the, so there there was a nurse who was taking care of me. She didn't know I was, you know, she just had just come on. She didn't know I was a doctor at, at the hospital. And, and she was explaining to me about my medications. And she said, well, I see you've had problems taking advice from physicians in the past. And so I want to make sure that you're going to take these medications. Nice. Nice. Well, it must have been in my chart that I had signed yeah, up. Yeah, you're, you're a prom patient. Is it true that you had to get CPR during a Broadway play? Is that a real yeah, story? Yeah, that's a true story. That was, that, I don't know how I survived that because um, my device didn't work. I mean, it it didn't, it, it fired, but it didn't convert the ventricular tachycardia and they had to get uh, external an external defibrillator, but I, I had CPR for a long time. And, you know, a lot of broken ribs from that CPR, which was done by a nurse who just happened to be there. And when I was waking up, there was a, someone was saying to her, why are you doing that so hard? But I, I think in fact, she saved my life because, you know, I've, I'm sure you've had this experience. You have somebody who arrests in the hospital with everybody there and all the equipment and everything. And they do CPR and they never wake up, you know, like, and boy, that was a, that was a miracle that I, you know, I made it through that. Wow. Do you remember what the play was? Yeah, it was School of Rock. It was <laughs> 20 minutes into it. And the funniest thing was, uh, it's so New York, you're going to love this. <laughs> so after all the CPR, they well, they immediately stopped. My wife screamed, and they immediately stopped the show. When, when I woke up, I was already being put on a stretcher. So that tells you how long they were doing CPR because the, the first alarmers were, you know, already there. And they so they, you know how they lift the, the gurney up? you know, on its legs and it sort of goes way up in the air. And when, when I popped up and I looked around, everybody was standing and they saw me and I like, you know, waved and like pointed and um, everybody broke into, you know, an ovation. 
And it was just so, you know, such a New York moment to be carried out on this stretcher and everybody's clapping. You know? The New Yorkers are good people. <laughs> well, we were supposed to see School of Rock and then it got shut down for COVID. So maybe I'll get in there and we can see it together. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were, so you were a resident, you were working crazy hours at one of the hardest programs. Did you see yourself as an unhealthy person then? Did you feel well? Soon after I had the ICD put in, it went off a number of times. And it, it's so debilitating when it goes off that I wasn't sure how this was going to work. And can, I, can you tell when it's about to go off or no idea? No, I don't know if you, if you were around at the time, but if the earliest versions of the device, they used to, when, when you developed an arrhythmia and it sensed it, it would wind up. It would make this incredible sound. And you knew you were going to get shocked then. Um, <laughs> and and it actually kind of made some people crazy. I remember, you know, as a intern taking care of patients on the cardiac unit, and they would hear this winding and they would just start shrieking. And, mm. and anyway, they got rid of that with the, you know, the second uh, prototype. And um, so, no, you didn't know when it was going to go off. It would just be like getting hit in the chest with a two by four. It just was, you know. So really, you know, I, I said, look, this thing isn't going to change. I'm going to have to change myself. Um, and I can't, I can't exist on adrenaline anymore. You know, I've got to not put myself in situations where, you know, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, potentially get shocked, you know. So I, I really changed the way I I thought about life at that point. I read I read there was a story that I that you ran there was a car accident and you pulled a baby out and that's and you got shocked. Is that can you tell me that story? Yeah, no, that was that was um, it was when I first went over to England. So we timed the ICD for the end of my second year of residency, and I, and I had already decided that um, I was going to go over to um, Oxford. Um, and do research with a very famous uh, transplant surgeon, uh, Sir Peter Morris. And, and so, um, you know, and, and they honestly, when they put the ICD in, they thought that surgery was over and maybe even medicine. Um, but my chairman, John Cameron, you know, really gave me a chance and said, well, go to Oxford. Let's see what happens. And then we'll decide when you get back, you know, because back then we would do a couple of years, usually two years in the laboratory after our second year of residency. So I went over there right after I had my ICD put in, which again was this gigantic operation. About two months after that, this car accident happened right in front of our house. Uh, we heard it and I ran out and extricated this child from an overturned car and, and the device went off three times, um, in a row. And it was, you know, it was very frightening and debilitating. And, um, you know, I just couldn't imagine like what, how is this going to work out with doing surgery? And in fact, it, it, my device never went off in the operating room. I was um, going to ask you that, of course, you know, 30 years of surgery, um, that followed. And, um, but I really had to, you know, be the calmest guy in the room, basically. Uh, people would say sometimes, you know, down in the trauma room or when somebody was bleeding out, you know, they'd say, God, it's as if you have Valium, you know, uh, <laughs> circulating 
in your blood. And I, I, it was an interesting calculation that I did, which was, okay, what is the worst thing that can happen? Well, I could die. And I'm in a position where that that's not something that is a fanciful thought. That's like a real possibility. So then everything less than that, you know, why would I worry about it? And if, you know, worrying about those other things is going gonna, gonna to make it more likely that I'm going to drop dead, then I'm not going to do that anymore. And um, I mean, that is kind of the simple calculation that I, that I made in my brain and then somehow infused into my physiology. I think through facing those situations over and over again and just dialing it down, you know, and, um, and, and then it became sort of like, you know, a biofeedback kind of way of, uh, of just not reacting when everybody else was, you know. I absolutely love this story. I want to dig into it a little deeper. Were you naturally a calm guy before, or was this a big change for you? This was, this was a big change. Certainly, you know, you, people can look calm on the outside and have a storm going on in the inside. And I was probably more like that. But, um, you know, that had to change. And, it, you know, it was interesting because I just found very quickly that I was so much more effective, you know, when I was in that state of not physiologically responding to things. That doesn't really help anything. And I knew the stakes were high. And I guess the biofeedback was, you know, the device going off, right? And knowing what that was like, I, I was able to do it and, and it became part of me. And then it was always part of me. It's like the ultimate biofeedback machine because the stakes were so high. I don't know if you watch Marvel movies, but you're like the Incredible Hulk trying not to get mad so that he turns into the Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> Except you succeeded at it. So like if you're in an O, I mean, you do complex operations, cases other people turn down. I'm sure I do some of those and I, I get into trouble. Like when you tear into a big vein, are you, you just remain the Iceman or like inside? I mean, how do you, how do you react to that? Do you get nervous? Yeah. I mean, I, cause I know that it's not like, I, you know, I've got to, I've got to be there. I've got to be intact. You know, it's not going to help the patient if, you know, if I'm on the floor. Right. I mean, it's easy to say that, but so many people no. are, are unable to act that way. You know, a lot of people have asked me about that. I, I don't, I didn't use any particular technique. It just was something I knew I had to do. And so, you know, every time I'd get up to give a talk, every time I would be in a difficult situation in the operating room, uh, I would just go into a space where I could just talk my my stress response away in the voice inside my head, you know. And it always started with, what's the worst thing that can happen here? You know, you could die. Anything less than that, it shouldn't be a problem for you at all. So, you know, let's just relax and, and take care of the problem. I hope listeners really think about that, that it is trainable and teachable, Obviously, you had the kind of ultimate reason to do it. I saw a talk you gave where you talked about resilience being like maybe the most important thing to teach people. Yeah. Were you always resilient or you learned it the hard way? You know, I've thought a lot about that. And I, I think you can be taught resilience from someone who embodies it. And I think 
you know, in preparing my children, because I, you know, my children have inherited this disease and I know what they're going to be up against. And so it's always been really important for me to, you know, to help prepare them for that. And I think, you know, in, in my, my relationship with my kids, you know, when they have the usual bumps and the ups and downs, um, I do talk to them about how important it is to, you know, achieve this state of being able to quickly uh, recover from disappointments and, you know, mishaps in your life and, and to stay focused, keep your eyes on the prize where you want to go. You know, I would say that my older kids have, they're already there and my nieces who also, um, you know, have ICDs and face this too. And I talk to all of them a lot about what they need to do, you know, to get right with this thing and really be focused on the long term, you know, staying healthy and staying out of trouble uh, with their with their disease. Do you and it, so I understand that it's an it's an autosomal dominant disease. Is that correct? Yes. Right. And you guys actually know the the gene. That's right. Yeah. When my brother died, we got together a group of his friends. He was an attorney. He was an admiralty lawyer out in Seattle, and he had a lot of successful friends. And And we formed a family foundation, and we started to you know, fund seed grants in labs that were, were looking at the genetic basis of cardiomyopathies. And one of those labs found the mutation that our family has. Um, it's called um, RBM20. It's just a, um, you know, a, a single uh, amino acid substitution. So it's sort of like if you have a phone book of phone numbers, it's like one number is wrong and, you know, in one of the phone numbers in the, in the book, but it happens to be an important phone number. And um, at least for your heart. Yeah, we do know um, my, my three biologic kids all inherited it. My two nieces, uh, you know, my brother Rich who died also have it. But uh, my brother who had a heart transplant has three boys and none of them got it. So it ends up being about 50-50. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I saw you uh, in a talk or a question answer period. And I believe your some of your children, when they were thinking of having kids, they had the option to do some in vitro analysis to sort out, you know, whether their kids have the gene. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, we've been aware of this, at least the, the kids who have had children so far have decided not to do that. Um, and it's, you know, that's a personal decision. But it is, it, you know, it is an option that, um, you know, you you can do egg harvest and fertilization. And then at a certain stage, as the embryo develops, remove one cell and do genetic analysis on each of the embryos and, and then only implant the embryos that don't have it which will be roughly half of the embryos. So that's always an option, but uh, people have to make that decision. And, you know, um, it, it's, it's tough. It is tough. I mean, I, I mean, you've done so much in your career, and I want to talk about some of the fun things, but this is really a part of you, isn't it? Do you feel sometimes like, I wish this wasn't me, or do you feel this is part of who I am? Yeah, well, I think that is really what my nieces and, and my daughter have felt that this, you know, has become an important part of them and they wouldn't consider not being who they are. Uh, I asked my one niece and she said, well, I, you know, what if my parents had made that decision, you know, about me? 
But certainly I feel a lot of who I am, you know, you talked about resilience, you know, has been forged through the experiences that I've had as a result of this disease. And um, I wouldn't give those things up. I mean, nobody wants to have a lifelong illness, but if it's something that you, you, you're born, you know, into, and it shapes you in a particular way, um, you certainly can appreciate what has resulted from that. And even imagine that it would be hard to believe that you could be who you are without it, you know? So it's a, it is a strange thing, but you know, if it were up to me, I'd, I'd like to see this disease gone from our family in this generation, but uh, right. it's not up to me. Right. I can imagine you look at it differently in yourself as you do in your kids or your grandkids. So Shifting gears a little bit, one of the first things I learned about you is that, which I think is so amazing, is you're actually married to a diva. And I don't mean like yeah. a diva, like sometimes people call me, but I mean like a legitimate opera superstar, <laughs> which is really awesome. Can you um, tell the story of how that happened? Oh, yeah. So I guess it happened the only place it could have happened um, because we traveled in such different worlds. We sat next to each other on an airplane. We struck up a conversation. Uh, it was an overnight flight and neither of us slept all night and we just talked. It, it was like a immediate thing that uh, we couldn't kind of walk away from. You know, it was it sort of stunned us both. We didn't know what it was or where it was going. Um, but, you know, we each told all our friends that we had met the most interesting person. And we made a, a, an agreement, you know, on the flight because she asked me if I knew anything about, about opera. And, I, you know, I, I knew nothing about it. And I said, well, you know, the only thing I know about opera is what I learned from watching Bugs Bunny. <laughs> and uh, this, that didn't really impress her that much. And, and I could tell. And I said, well, you do, do you know anything about surgery? <laughs> And uh, she said, no, nothing. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what, you come and watch me do a kidney transplant and, and I'll come and watch you do an opera. And so uh, we, we, we held up both ends of that agreement. It wasn't until several years later, but um, we kept in touch. It was, you know, this sort of smoldering uh, love affair that just wasn't the right time for either of us, but, um, you know, was letters that we sent to each other and uh and we eventually you know i went and saw her in uh at uh washington national opera in bluebeard's castle and she a year or two later came and watched me do a kidney transplant and it the rest is history as they say oh my gosh <laughs> i can't first of all i can't believe you used the bugs bunny line on her i think it's <laughs> fantastic but <laughs> I hope she said the only thing she knew about surgery was from like young Frankenstein or something like that. <laughs> Were you nervous operating in front of her? No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Because that was my theater. Yeah. You know? I like that. <laughs> That's right. That's what you do. That's your safe place. And probably she feels that way up on the stage. It's totally my safe place. I'm sure you feel the same way. You know, when I go in the operating room life, it's, you know, John Cameron used to always tell me, don't, you know, don't ever stop operating because otherwise everybody's going to be trying to get you to do things you don't want to do. And the one place that you, they can't get to you is in the operating room, right? 
Yes. You know, I'm a chair of surgery now and I do a, a lot of administrative work, but when I'm in the operating room, no one's bothering me. It's, it's just a wonderful place. Yeah. It is the one spot where everything else, you can just push it away and people understand that. And you just focus on the task at hand and enjoying the people around you. Do you listen to music in the OR? I think I heard you did. I do. Yeah, I do. Do you listen to opera or no? <laughs> no. Every now and then, but not very often. And if I do, it's my wife. It's your wife. <laughs> that is really phenomenal. It must be exciting to... I You know, I'm married to a vascular surgeon who's wonderful, but I always had thought it'd be really cool to marry someone in a totally different field. So when you go home, the things you talk about have nothing to do with, you know, what you're doing during the day. Yeah, you know, I think it's there, there's benefits to, to both because... You know, obviously, your wife knows exactly what you're experiencing and can go right there. You, you don't have to set anything up. Yes, absolutely. You know, the struggles, the anxieties when you're worried about a patient, she she totally gets that and I get that for her. But there are funny things like for a while, like I would talk about, oh, I uh, I did this to a patient and I'm worried about them. And she would say, hmm, I wouldn't have done that. And then she learned a long time ago, like, she'll say to me, do you want my reaction as your wife or as a, as a surgeon? <laughs> Usually I'm like, oh, as my wife. <laughs> but you're right. We do. We are able to connect when, you know, when the times are hard. Um, so let's, um, I guess we should dig into it. So ultimately, you um, started having more problems with your heart. At this point, you are, you've moved from Hopkins, where you were chief of transplant, to NYU, where you were brought to start their transplant center. Is that correct? That's right. It seemed like a great opportunity. You know, at the time, I felt like I had done, you know, everything that I could do at, at Hopkins. And this came up, actually, um, it's interesting. They asked me to come in as a consultant to review a failing program. They had a very small kind of boutique transplant program. We're doing, uh, I think, 48 transplants a year, just uh, liver and kidney. And I just saw the potential and, and also the desire and commitment that the leadership had to making this thing happen. And I said to myself, you know, we can make something great in New York. And, you know, New York at the time had the lowest donor rate, you know, in the country. And it felt like if, if we could go there and, and just do some of the things that we were doing, you know, at Hopkins, maybe the, the rising tide would would raise all the boats and we could make a big impact on on New York. And so, you know, my administrator at Hopkins, uh, Bridget Sullivan and I kind of thought saw this as a great challenge and really we we really looked at it and wrote a uh, white paper on like what it what we would need and and the leadership here said let's do it and that's how it happened. That's amazing. And um, I'm sure you had no idea that what within two years of leaving this place you had been at for so long to the big city, um, you would suddenly you would need a heart. It's not suddenly, I suppose, but you would need a heart transplant. Yeah, you know, because I, I would have pure, long periods of time when where where I would be fine, you know, and then you know suddenly things could change, and you know I knew at some point I was going to get into trouble, but it wasn't clear it was going to be then. So a year after I got to New York, I did an annual trip that I do with my sons to Argentina. We're outdoorsmen. We love to hunt and fish. And that's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And 
And so we were there and I started to get sick with a respiratory, like a flu-like, and uh, then got febrile and shaking chills and collapsed. And I was septic and I arrested. And it turned out I had a really bad bug called Pseudomonas. And it was a multi-drug resistant bacteria that I must have brought with me. And so I collapsed, you know, and with, uh, with, with the folks at the lodge. And my son started to do CPR on me. And, you know, there, were, there was a lot of snow and uh, he actually carried, he and uh, the two other guys carried me. He, he had, didn't have his shoes on at the time. And so I found out later that he spent 12 hours, you know, in his bare feet, um, you know, getting me to a hospital. And they put me in the back of a truck and did CPR and uh, went to a hospital. We're in the middle of nowhere. This is in Patagonia. Went to this tiny hospital and they took one look at me and said, you know, there's nothing we can do for him and um, transferred me into an ambulance and they took me to a place that was a five hour drive. And I spent three, three and a half weeks on a ventilator, you know, in a, a medicine induced coma on a stretcher, you know, in this tiny little hospital before in, until I was stable enough to be airlifted back to uh, NYU. When I woke up and got extubated, I couldn't talk or eat or drink, I would aspirate, go right into my lungs when I would try to take anything because the, the endotracheal tube had been in so long and I couldn't walk. You know, I thought it, I, it was another point where I thought it was all over. And, you know, I didn't know that I would ever recover, but I was so set in my mind that, you know, uh, I was going to do my very best to try to get over this thing. And, you know, two and a half months later, I was back in the operating room after that. But my ejection fraction really suffered from that septic episode. It had been as low as, uh, it was less than 10% when I was down in Argentina. Um, it never really fully recovered. And that sort of, you know, set the stage a year later than I had a, another episode where I had multiple arrests, something called ventricular tachycardic storm, where you just recover from one firestorm of dysrhythmias, you get shocked, and then immediately go and do another one. And that happened. And again, I was, you know, in a remote place in Italy when it happened. Three weeks later, I had a new heart. It is a, I mean, a testament to you and the people around you that you got through all this, but that you also still went to these remote places. <laughs> I can tell you the Mesrich family, we would be sitting in like a hospital room probably that whole time. <laughs> I knew that that it was a risk, but I, I had decided that, you know, I was going to, to, you know, it was all part of what we had talked about earlier. I, I wasn't going to cut corners on my life. I, I, I wasn't going to do it less. You know, the things that I love, I was going to continue to do. And, and then whatever the consequences were, you know, I was willing to accept. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you, you came back, you needed a heart. And I just want to, I know you ended up accepting a hepatitis C positive heart, which at the time when you accepted it was a, a pretty experimental. It's becoming more common now because of people like you, I think. 
Was that a no-brainer for you? So there, there is uh, one of my young colleagues at Hopkins had had this idea for quite a few years, uh, Naraj uh, Desai. You know, back in the era of pegylated interferon and ribavirin, you know, the response to hepatitis C was like 20 to 30 percent, but he was still thinking about it even then. And then when these new this new class of, you know, the direct acting antivirals really started to look very promising around 2012, 2013, he talked more about it to me. And, you know, I thought it wasn't as crazy then. Um, and so he started to approach some of the pharmaceutical companies about doing an initial trial, which, which he did. And it was right about the time they were getting that going that I moved to New York. So when we started our new heart program and our new lung program and, you know, wanted to really make a, a mark in the city, we were looking for ways to both, you know, import organs from outside of the area and to use organs that, you know, the other centers weren't using. And so we brought this protocol with us and started doing it. And I was the the 14th subject in basically the, the study that I had brought here. And, you know, it wasn't a hard decision for me at all. It, it, I, I had been very involved in, in using, you know, the increased infectious risk organs throughout my career, dating all the way back to my new status as a, uh, a faculty member. I did a uh, kidney pancreas transplant on a, a young woman who was going blind from a type 1 diabetes, and she was in her early 20s, and she wasn't going to live very long. And I got a lot of criticism for using an organ from a IV drug user, you know, at the time and, and always felt like, you know, that it was incumbent on me to prove that this was a, uh, a way of saving lives, not putting people at risk. And so, you know, I felt like I, I've been a champion of this for years. So why shouldn't, why wouldn't I do it? You know, it just was easy. It was easy. And using an organ that might be discarded was a wonderful thought to me. Were you scared going into the transplant or you were? No. No. Not at all. No. Totally at peace. You're healthier now. I mean, you're a healthy guy now. I feel like this might be the first time in a long time that you might say that. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, uh, taking care of transplant patients, it's it's a long slide into, you know, end organ failure. And the changes happen slowly and, you know, in small increments. And I'm sure you've had the same experience that I've had over and over again, where people just say, oh, my God, I had no idea how bad I felt. You get used to not feeling well, and you compensate. And so I feel great. You know, I, I am able to run. I, you know, during now, during the pandemic, when the gyms have been closed, what I do is I walk from the West Village, you know, to Midtown every day. I do about 12,000 12, steps, you know, a day walking briskly to, to work back and forth. And I feel great. You'll be uh, back to Argentina, right? Yeah, yeah. I was supposed to go back this uh, past summer, um, but but of course, you know. You're, you're right. What you said, the um, particularly in the kidney patients, the the people who just keep working while they're on dialysis, and they tell you, "No, doc, I feel fine." And then you do the kidney, and the next day, they're like, "I cannot believe how good I feel." And it isn't it one of the best things we get to experience as their caregivers. What a beautiful thing. It is. You know, I, I, I want to wrap up because I think I could talk to you forever. And I think despite your 
disease pattern. You're such an inspiration. You're such a positive person. And I almost feel like saying it in a way, it's really been a gift to you. I don't know if that sounds like the right or wrong words, but no, for sure. You, you've led this incredible life. And I, I think you have a whole chapter or more ahead of you. I mean, you're a new chairman now at NYU, which I'm sure you're going to do great things in that. Do you see it that way, maybe? Yeah, I think I'm less worried about many things. I think I'm less concerned about, you know, taking risks, smart risks, like what I call smart risks, you know, not putting people at risk. But, you know, there's acts of commission and there's acts of omission. You know, when we're thinking about risk, we're more worried about doing something that is going to harm somebody than we are about withholding something that might help somebody. I think that's part of, you know, what we're, it's part of the Hippocratic Oath. It's what kind of is ingrained in us. But I think you need to take responsibility for the things you don't do too, you know, uh, not just the things you do. And that has been a pervasive thought throughout my career that um, if you if if you don't if you're unwilling to take any risk to get this make this thing better because it's not good right now, you know almost half of the patients waiting for a transplant don't make it to get a transplant. That, that's not a that that that's not a satisfactory situation. And either is you know the way we, we have to survive after the transplant and the drugs and the side effects and. The fact that so many um, transplant patients don't return to a normal life. These are all things that we've got to change and we can't be satisfied. And so one thing I'm never is satisfied. I always want it to be better. And, and I'm, I'm not worried about myself in terms of, you know, taking risks. I worry about the patients and so on, but, you know, and I'm very conscious of, what are the consequences if we don't do something new? What are the consequences if we don't innovate? And I take responsibility for those too. Yeah, you wrote a beautiful piece about this in the New England Journal, but I know um, Tom Starzl was one of your heroes, I believe, and mine as well. And you know, you knew him well. I spent a couple of days with him, but when I was talking to him, I was telling him about, I had wanted to move forward on this imminent death donation case and a patient with ALS and wanted to donate his organs. And we were very close to doing it. But then we had like an ethics committee and they supported it, but then the lawyers got involved and they put the kibosh on it. And when I told Tom, Tom Starzl the story, of course, the father of transplant or liver transplant, he said, well, you've just described exactly how not to do it. In my day, we just would have done it. I know it was a different era, but I think you probably see that as well. I do, but you know, there, there's, you know, I think we just have to do our homework a lot better now. But a lot of people are turned off by that, you know, they, and, and it doesn't always work out. It does take a lot more, I think, to innovate and to do new things. And that can be off-putting. Um, but we can't, you know, ever forget about the missed opportunities. I think, you know, to the young people, the young people in medicine who might be listening there's still so much that needs to be done, and and the status quo is 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 not good. It, it does take a lot more to to accomplish these things than in the days of Starzl, but it's worth it. You can't shy away from it. You've got to take that challenge. 
I look forward to you leading leading the way in the ne- in the next charge. Hey, I got to end by asking you because I teased about it in my intro. So one thing I first noticed about you is you have always had this amazing mustache that kind of I called it a what did I call it a friendly mutton that kind of went down. It looks like you might have shaved part of that. Good one, yeah. <laughs> Was yeah. there ever a story behind that or you just liked it? No, it's weird, you know. That just happened. <laughs> I swear to god, you know, it, I just got out of its way. I, it just kind of like happened. And it's interesting because, you know, in the second week of March, when um, the surge hit New York, it was just so wild here. Then we, it, it was like the sky was falling. I mean, these people were just pouring into the hospital and dying. And our transplant patients were dying at just an incredible rate. You know, so I like immediately thought, okay, well, this is my second plague, right? You know, I had lived through the early days of uh, AIDS, and now there's this, and I've got to get myself prepared. So I went immediately went to probably a bad idea, but I immediately went to my barber and I said, "Look, you you need to cut my mustache off." <sighs> and he was like, "What?" And I said, "And I this is a guy I've been going to for like 30 years." I said, um, "You know, I got to get ready." for either an endotracheal tube or an N95 mask, whichever one comes my way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, sadly, I sit here before you with uh, a mere shadow of my old uh, mustache. Um, but it's coming back. It's, it's coming back. Yeah. COVID, that was, COVID did that damage to you. Well, for what it's worth. did that damage. And one other thing, too, you know, it's not back yet because you're probably aware, but um, I've had both of the doses of the vaccine, uh, but I don't have any antibody. And we're beginning to, you know, realize that our transplant patients, some of our transplant patients are not developing immunity um, to the vaccine. And um, so, you know, it's going to, for me and, and other transplant patients like me, it's going to continue to be a bit of an uncertain, you know, future until we figure this out. But it's important to know that that's a possibility and to not um, feel, you know, if you've had, if you're immunosuppressed and you've had the vaccine that you're, you're okay and can, can stop taking the precautions. Got it. So you're wearing an N95 and... Just yeah, and when I see patients, I continue to yeah do everything. Yeah. Well, I do look forward to seeing the mustache back. And I will tell you, I grew my hair crazy long during COVID, and I was loving it. And I, in my mind, thinking I look like Brad Pitt. And <laughs> I came downstairs in workout clothes, which, I mean, I'm in great shape and all. And my wife looks at me and goes, you know who you look like? You look like Richard Simmons. <laughs> and I... <laughs> I called the barber and said, I'm coming in hot. And that was the end of my <laughs> end of my long hair. So well, it's been so great talking to you. I hope I can have you on in the future to talk about the future. That was a topic I wanted to get into. But your life has been so fascinating and I'm so glad you're doing well. And I have to tell you, I didn't I didn't know you were going through all this. And I bet a lot of our community had no idea, maybe even some of your friends. Yeah, I mean, I, I never withheld any information, but most people didn't, you know, at, didn't question or ask. Obviously, you know, everybody at Hopkins knew, but I think they all felt, you know, a certain amount of um, wanting to protect, you know, that information. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I did, you know, when when it came to, you know, the run up to my transplant and since I've been, been very public 
um, about it and, you know, in kind of any chance I, I can, I, I want to, uh, talk about it and help inform people about transplantation and, and, you know, the, the challenges and the successes that we, that we're, uh, in the midst of. That's great. I'm so excited about your next chapter. All right. Well, thank you so much and good luck at NYU. And I hope to see you soon at an actual meeting or talk or something like that. That would be amazing. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to grand rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. Welcome.